0: Hi everyone, this is Curious Task producer and sometimes host, Sabine El Elinor Eleanor Ostrom is someone who changed my view on many aspects of classical liberalism and taught me how to see the world as somewhere a community can thrive and where people aren't helpless. I think at a time where we're worried about things like climate change and scarcity,
1: the ideas of Eleanor Ostrom are more important than ever before. Jamie Lemke does a great job giving an overview of Ostrom's work and ideas, and I'm excited to share this episode with you all once again hope you enjoy
2: who was Eleanor Ostrom today on the curious task I speak with Jamie Lemke Welcome to The Curious Task from the Institute for Liberal Studies, where we explore economics, politics, philosophy, and other ideas from a classical liberal perspective. I'm Alex Aragona, your host, and today I'm speaking with Jamie Lemke. Jamie is a Senior Research Fellow at the Mercatus Centre at George Mason University and a Senior Fellow in the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. She received her PhD in Economics from George Mason University. Jamie specializes in public choice economics constitutional political economy and the political economy of women's rights. In addition to her work on the evolution of women's economic rights and opportunities in United States history, she has written on public choice and institutional theory as applied to policing, higher education, and other local public services. She's also written a summary piece on the late Eleanor Ostrom and has her own work expanding on Ostrom's ideas. That will form the basis of our conversation today. Jamie, welcome to The Curious Task.
0: Oh, thank you so much for having me on. I'm such a big fan of the podcast and all the work that the Institute for Liberal Studies does. So it's just a really treat for me this morning to be here with you.
2: Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for the comment. And it's, of course, great to have you on, especially for this great topic. So uh, as you know, we we base each of our episodes on a question and go over the answers and conversation takes us. Our question today is, who was Eleanor Ostrom? And to explore that, we're going to tour through the broad strokes of uh, of your book and the uh, the piece you wrote on her for the essential woman of Liberty series. Uh, but to start, I thought it would be fun. If you could give us your best one sentence summary of who she was, and then we'll drill into many of the details. Obviously one sentence can't cover, but if you were in an elevator and someone said, I've never heard of Eleanor Ostrom, who would she, who is she? Um, what would be the one sentence? We'll allow some em dashes and semicolons, but, but the sort of high level summary, if you will.
0: <laughs> oh, my God, the pressure of capturing such a complex life in one sentence. OK, I'll do my best. Eleanor Ostrom was a, a student of society and a political scientist who used the tools of her discipline and insights from economics in order to understand better how people could work together and build institutions to enable cooperation and flourishing.
2: Great. I think that works out. So with that in mind, we're going to explore pretty much exactly that as we tie through a lot of these points here. So expanding this portrait, we're going to paint of her for today in our conversation I'd like to first now do a, a little bit of a, a touch point on some biographical details just to start the picture of her life for our listeners. Assuming you know, I'm assuming some of our listeners are uh, very familiar with her, but others might not be at all. So I'm just going to kind of cover the whole spectrum here. So let's start with some basics around what time was she born and what were some of her earlier life experiences before academia?
0: Eleanor Ostrom was a, a child of the Great Depression. So she talks about um, growing up during the, the later years of the Great Depression and during the years of World War II, um, dealing with situations of scarcity, even, including um, food scarcity in her community, you know, not from a wealthy family. So she became interested from a very early age in kind of these issues of when a community is facing a problem and nobody from the outside is fixing it for them how can they work together in order to address it themselves? Um, so she she does talk about kind of that childhood and those childhood experiences being something that that matters to her later on.
2: And I'm not sure if she mentioned it directly because I'm not familiar with the literature, but especially being a child of the Depression, I'm sure there's also some reference points in the back of her mind, of course, at what it looks like when the government specifically might try to centralize a bunch of things and solve problems that way.
0: Yeah, sure. Sure, absolutely. I I don't know to what, you know, at, at what time in her life did she become politically aware and how politically aware was she before she started formally studying political science in the 1950s? Um that I'm not sure about. Um but she certainly saw a period of incredible change in um you know, American standards of living and in uh, politics globally and in the United States. So I have to imagine that that had a big impact on her um i know in her i'm jumping ahead a little biographically so we can kind of come back to her studies later if you want Mm -hmm. but um in one of her first jobs she was in admissions during the vietnam war so she was one of the people who had to filter through the applications of these young men who were sending in applications to be able to study and I, I believe this is when she was at Indiana Bloomington. But, right. you know, she has kind of their, their life in her hands. Where she, so I think she's always um, been aware of kind of the deep personal impact that political and, and social institutions can have on an individual. And, you know, obviously had to confront that very directly at many points in her young life. I'm mm-hmm. sure there are a lot of... One of the interesting things about studying Eleanor Ostrom at George Mason University is that I work with people who knew her personally and knew her well. Um, Bobby Herzberg is one of my colleagues. One of her first jobs was working at um, the workshop in political theory and policy mm-hmm. analysis, which is, you know, what the Ostroms wind up um, creating, kind of their, their main center. So it it's... I think it gives me a little bit different perspective because they have this deep personal knowledge. Whereas I, you know, I met her from a distance a couple of times, but at, at the point I started in my career, I never, you know, she never told me, "Call me Lynn." Like she, right. a lot, of, a lot of her friends call. Her, so I always call her Eleanor. Um, but so I think some of those personal stories, probably other folks could flesh them out a little. More deeply, but I do think there also is an advantage to the fact that I got to know her um exclusively through her work
1: mm-hmm.
0: and I think this care shows up even in her extremely scientific work because she is always prioritizing the human experience and the impact on human society, regardless of what kind of you know big picture political theory questions she's asking or what kind of like small picture technical how are we going to solve this problem question that she's asking
2: mm-hmm. yeah no and and, and you said you're sort of going to skip ahead and like and we will come back to some things but i think you did a great job of actually just tracing a line right through some of the stuff that uh, i want to get into a few more details on so kind of directly in like that sort of framework you just put together first you sort of quickly touch base and mentioned like her earlier academic career and stuff. So why don't we actually just go back to that and get into it a little further? So what did that journey look like? And what did she initially choose to study as an undergraduate and so on? So at the earlier part of her interest in academia.
0: Yeah, she what, So one of the interesting things about Eleanor Ostrom's history is that she didn't really get much encouragement from the people in her life to go to even college let alone to graduate work, you know, let alone to becoming a professor. Um, so when she decided to go to college, that in itself was a little bit of a family conflict. Mm-hmm. Um, but certainly after she she was working in kind of an administrative role at UCLA, and she took a couple of classes in public administration kind of for fun, decided that she wanted to go into graduate study. Um, But because of some of the material she was interested in, the department she wanted to enter was the economics department, Um, but they didn't want her Mm. because they had admitted four women the year before and their perception at the time was that those women had not been a credit to the department. Whether that's accurate or not, it's impossible to say. Right. Um. So I, I don't know if that was actually driven by the fact that those four particular women were not a strong selection, or was that um the faculty and other students' uncomfortability with having women around them when they were not used to it? I I don't know. Um but so they said, we're not gonna, we're not gonna let in any more ladies. Um and so she wound up applying to the political science department and doing her her graduate study in UCLA in political science. Um, which was extremely fortuitous for her both professionally and personally because that winds up being where she meets Vincent also. Yeah. Her husband, Vincent Ostrom, you know, in case anybody don't, um, doesn't know, they were um, intellectual collaborators, strong intellectual cl- collaborators through their whole lives. Um, so, I mean, there are a couple of things that I find amazing about this. The first is that you have a woman who's, mom is telling her that it's a waste of time mm-hmm. whose first husband is telling her that it's a waste of time.
2: Right. And they, and they, of course got, got divorced over that issue. If I got the meaning correctly from your, uh, from your writing.
0: Yeah. Um, he, you know, he was not willing to support her. So, and, and they decided to, to call it quits. So that kind of commitment to these ideas, I think says a lot about her, but also, how many of us have the fortitude to be told no by our family, no by our spouse, no by the academic institution, and we still not only forge ahead, but go on to win a Nobel Prize in the discipline, <laughs> and well, actually, in in even a different discipline than the one that your degree is formally in, because she right. won the Nobel Prize um, in economics, right? Um, and she received the highest award in political science as well. But I I think that kind of tenacity. Is just incredible.
2: Absolutely, and, and just to tie a bow on that, then so like so, so because you mentioned it right there. So she, we we kind of kicked off there on her undergraduate, and her going into academia, and some of the barriers she faced. But as she moved through academia, so can you just cement and and reconfirm there? So what what was her master's in, and then her PhD? Can you take me from that point onward, kind of thing?
0: Um, so she winds up getting her um her PhD in political science. Was her master's in political science or in public administration? I can't recall off the top of my head. Um, but I, I just I know it wasn't in economics. Okay. Um and so her first job and, and you know, come back at me if I wind up forgetting any part of your question. It's not intentional. Oh
2: no, that's okay. Yeah, no, this is great, <laughs> <laughs>
0: um but so Obviously I think when we hear this story today the idea that she when she's working on her PhD she takes a class with Vincent Ostrom and then winds up dating him before she's even completed her doctorate you know I think I think there are a lot of good reasons to kind of say oh I don't is that was that 100% a good thing what was what exactly was going on here um, so I don't know if it makes anybody feel any better she did stop taking his classes so she wasn't formally graded by him after they started dating Um, but, you know, in addition to obviously forming a strong personal connection, it was by taking his classes that she kind of cemented some of her early research ideas. Um, and in particular, this is where she first started studying water rights
1: Mm.
0: and living in, um, the UCLA area, California still deals with incredible drought, but you know, for even in the the 1950s, that was a serious problem of different communities having to negotiate how much could be drawn from different water basins without potentially creating um, a serious uh, water shortage problem. So that was something um, that these different communities had to come together and figure out a way to negotiate. And I think part of the insight that generates that question is knowing that. You're living in basically a desert and there are people who are managing to find a way to survive there. So you have people facing um, what should be a serious technical challenge but overcoming it. And that kind of general theme of looking around the world for um, things that shouldn't work, for situations that should be really hard, but yet people, individuals find a way to manage them and deal with them and still thrive in even those difficult situations. Um, That's something that comes up later also in her work where she's studying policing. Um, She goes on to study, you know, irrigation and water management and national resource management in environments kind of around the world. But that all started, that interest all started in those PhD classes in political science at UCLA.
2: Yeah, and and you mentioned the, the workshop in political theory and political analysis. So, so can we get a little deeper into what exactly was that, and what was going on there, and why was it so pivotal and foundational to her interest and her research and contributions?
0: Yeah. Um. So, another kind of interesting demonstration of Eleanor Ostrom's tenacity, I think, is that when Indiana University Bloomington first hired Eleanor Ostrom and Vincent Ostrom, um. Vincent was the candidate that they were really seeking. Eleanor Ostrom was an add-on hire. She had to teach the 8 a.m. classes. She had to do a lot of the um, grunt work for the department. Um, but Vincent Ostrom was this you know, highly respected political theorist, faculty member at UCLA. So they, um, they were really trying to attract him But even early in their career, they both were committed to this idea that it is a joint project and that understanding the world is something that we do together by looking both at the grand political theory of what it means to be democratic, of what kinds of um, problems emerge in institutional environments, and, and in general, what is the capacity to engage in any kind of institutional design or intentional change. And that winds up getting married kind of literally and figuratively with um, Eleanor's more practical approach, where she's saying, okay, so if what we're interested in is these questions about whether or not people can design rules in order to improve their lives and the lives of others around them, um, let's go study that. Let's go look at these particular situations and go out into the field. Let's go out into the cities and, and examine the public safety situation. Let's go out into the field and meet people and let's go deep into the history books and really read about um, what were the, the conversations that people had? What were the strategies that they used in order to set up effective systems of monitoring and enforcement? Um, Because in both cases, both coming from, you know, Vincent Ostrom's study of political theory, where he's looking at the United States Constitution, which is this like incredible experiment to try to generate to create a large society that is governed by the people where the genuine authority rests with the individual i mean this is something that at at that point in time is going against thousands and thousands of years of precedent in government where authority comes from god or from the monarch or dictator it always it's coming from somewhere way up above far away from where an individual could access or influence it So he's, you know, studying this political theory and thinking, hey, you know, maybe there really is kind of serious potential for individuals to manage power with each other rather than um, just constantly being subjected to, (laughs) you know, a a different dictator, a different um, overarching authority all the time. And Eleanor is basically doing the same thing at a different scale. She's saying, are people helpless? Are they sitting around waiting for somebody to make their neighborhood safer to ensure that they're going to have water tomorrow? Or can they actively do something about it themselves today? But I, don't, I know that's a lot of information, but I'm just trying to convey that, that when at Indiana Bloomington, they created this workshop in political theory and policy analysis. that That's the, I know it's like kind of an unwieldy name but I think they, they really felt like they needed both of those perspectives in there and they needed to be pushing from both of those directions in order to really address some of the social problems that they were most concerned about.
2: And it still exists today, correct?
0: It still exists today. Yeah, mm-hmm. they never attached their own names to it during their lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, but as a, an honorific after they passed, it was renamed the Eleanor and Vincent Ostrom Workshop in Political Theory and Policy Analysis.
2: And just to get into the nit and grit of this a little bit more, so like it, as as a workshop, is it where students and graduate students get to come together and uh, do seminars, and like, can you get a little bit more exactly what happens there at, at this workshop on a day to day or week to week basis?
0: Yeah. Um, so the name workshop was chosen for a couple of reasons. Um, the first was that it wasn't a predefined administrative category at the institution. So that kind of enabled them to create their own internal governance structure rather than having to call themselves, you know, a department mm-hmm. or a research center, something like that, that would have already had existing rules. They wanted to to design their own. Um, but also it was because they had this experience early in their careers of working with a master craftsman who like like literally built furniture and they worked with him to build a table themselves. And that metaphor of kind of the difficulty of starting with a material circumstance from which you are given and trying to craft it into something more purposeful, more beautiful is one that stuck with them and which they wanted to bring into their scholarship as well um because they were um, very much in you know on the side of scholarship that never wanted to be the technocratic expert mm. um, so you know this idea of always. You know, never being kind of above the situation, but instead being deeply in it, that kind of, you know, craftsperson, you know, workshop-like mentality. That's what they wanted to foster. And so, yeah, what that meant practically is that they did have a large population of graduate students who were there working with them. They had um, other faculty that they brought in. Um... I'm not sure to what extent they had faculty who are outside of political science formally appointed within the workshop in early right. years. But I know certainly in a lot of their outreach efforts where they were bringing in faculty from other institutions, they were really trying to invite um, people both from different disciplines and who had different methodological training um, because part of what they wanted to do at the workshop was to look at a problem from as many angles as possible and use all the tools that were at their disposal. So this is where their commitment to multiple methods, science comes in. Um, so they're trying to bring together all these people, all these faculty, all these graduate students, and then all work on the same puzzle together. Uh-huh. So it was it was part training, part just trying to bring all these different voices and perspectives into into the research questions that they were solving. Wow. Or tr- or trying to solve uh, trying to understand at least.
2: Right. Well that's very interesting and I do want to use that as a jump off point to now get into a couple more specifics about her main contributions and thought but I actually think although it's a little early it's a good place to put our break so we can jump into that after the break so we'll do that right now everyone you're listening to the Curious Task I'm speaking with Jamie Lemke today Mm The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. Feel free to send questions, feedback, guest recommendations, or anything else that's on your mind to curioustask at liberalstudies.ca. As always, a huge thanks to our supporters on Patreon, including Daniel Beer, Rosa Pagadello, and Danny LaRoy. Remember to like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter at The Curious Task, rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you're listening to Curious Task, and check out the Institute for Liberal Studies. Welcome back, everyone. You're listening to Curious Task. I'm speaking with Jamie Lemke today. So, so Jamie, uh, at the end of our first half there, we were just sort of capping off sort of like that little transition, if you will, from just the general biographical tracing of Eleanor Ostrom, her career and where she spent her time and and kind of like the, her main interests and stuff. And I want to get a little bit more specific about uh, some of her main contributions that you highlighted in your work, for example, and uh, and also highlight, you know, the way our listeners should be thinking about that kind of stuff and what they can take from it. So that'll probably be most of our second half, actually. But before we move forward and get into all that, I know that a bunch of words and things will be thrown around in terms that I figured it might be better just like sort of have you explain and define them up front. So that as we start sprinting and getting into some of her contributions and stuff, we don't have to, I don't have to pull you in a bunch of different directions. So it, it, if we, you know, if, if we kind of think of some main key words, and of course, I'll, you know you can add to the list if you'd like. When we put on our Ostrom hats, like we want to sort of understand things like what we really mean by public good, what we really mean by institutions, what we really mean by rules and commons and polycentric. I mean, like some people's common sense sort of definition of these might actually work very well. Other times, not so much, just depending on people's own backgrounds are. So I kind of want to go through a few of these keywords, and it kind of gives us an opportunity to, for you to kind of d- define them from your perspective and how we think about them. And where the you know those thoughts should lead us when we put on our Ostrom awesome hats. So let's start with public good, uh, and then we'll start segueing into institutions, rules, and commons, so on and so forth. Because there's a mi- always a misconception around like, oh, when someone says that's a public good, this is a public good, and I think this is a key to understanding a lot of this and opening the door. So when you say public good, what do you mean by that? And-
0: yeah, a public good does. Economists and political scientists definitely use this term differently than. Um, plain English might suggest. Um, Because a a public good doesn't mean just anything that's good for the public or Mm -hmm. that the public likes. Um, Instead, it has this technical definition of of something that is non-rival and non-exclusive, which basically means um, that it's difficult not to share as long as you're producing it. And it's difficult to enforce that only people who... Uh, contribute to its production in some way, whether whether that's financial or some other form of contribution. It, it's difficult to limit, so these kinds of goods are often seen as um, kind of in this unique category of being particularly difficult to produce if left to the private market. Um, so this is where you see arguments like for national defense, for public education, we have to have these provided by the government. They simply won't exist if they're not that this is that's kind of the 1950s 60s simplified um neoclassical take on public goods mm-hmm. so Ellen Orstrom, this is a drum that she winds up having to beat for her entire career um i i still don't think her her critique has been Her critique might be now accepted at face value. I'm not sure it's been fully incorporated into all of the research and applications people do. Um, But her critique is kind of twofold. First of all, she she says this definition of a public good isn't as straightforward as kind of this neoclassical approach might think it is. Most of the goods and services that we deal with on a day-to-day basis have some aspects of that publicness, uh, you know the the actions that we take, even in the private market, frequently have you know spillover benefits onto others, um, things like that. Mm-hmm. But then the kind of the the real primary thrust of the challenge is that simply categorizing a good as either public or private or as something that is owned in common. Um, you know, doing these simple categorizations is not enough to tell us what the ideal institutional structure should be. Um, and, you know, kind of that initial claim I, I made that the, you know, 1950s economics argues, well, we won't have any national defense. We don't won't have any education if they're not provided publicly. That's simply empirically not true if you look around the world. You know, there are, there are many places in the world that have... Um, that have organizations working for public safety that have education being provided that have um social services being provided by organizations other than governments um so we know that people and organizations other than governments can do these things mm-hmm. um so a big part of her um analytical thrust that came out of all of the observations that she made during these different environments and in all of her study is that Institutional diversity is vast and people have actually found many, many different ways to provide these types of goods that have varying degrees of public and private characteristics. And so if we want to understand the full range of institutional possibility, we need to go out and look at what people have actually designed and and accomplished. We can't start off by limiting ourselves with this blackboard construction.
2: And you said specifically it was some of her early work on policing and water infrastructure that sort of shaped a lot of her thoughts on local public goods. Could you just expand on our sort of public good jump off point with with those two specific pieces?
0: Yeah, Um, the policing in particular is an interesting one um, because there was a, a significant movement in public administration in the 1950s and 1960s that was building off kind of an intellectual trend that had been going on since the 1920s or even earlier, which was just the the increasing popularity of scientifically designed, efficient systems and trying to incorporate those into all elements of life. And so, you know, we saw this happening um, within... Uh, factory production systems with, you know, Taylorism and, you know, trying to um, critique the particulars of people's movements in order to to get the most out of a factory production line. Um, obviously, this was a big part of many major political movements, you know, including um, socialism, just the idea of designing a superior social system from the top down um but kind of one small or uh, one piece of that main mentality that worked its way into public administration in the United States at this time um was this idea that there will be a best way to provide any particular public good so that's why so it connects you know back to this idea of are they simple divisions or are are these actually diverse problems that need diverse solutions but so this um they call them they're kind of lumped in under this heading of consolidationists. But because they had this idea that the, the one efficient way to provide public safety is something that would be worked out by experts who were studying activity within these systems. And that one of the things those experts found was enormous redundancy with, you know, different neighborhoods, different cities providing the same services for their constituents. And they said, well, let's just cut out some of this redundant activity and form, you know, we'll merge, we'll bring it together and form one large organization to eliminate some of those redundancies. Um, And Eleanor Ostrom and her research team, they're, you know, coming from their perspective of seeing this institutional diversity, of seeing unique problems that need unique solutions. They kind of questioned, okay, you know, a big city like Indianapolis, a big city like chicago you're telling me every neighborhood wants the same thing, every neighborhood needs the same kind of services, you know needs the same kind of police activity in order to feel safe and be safe. Um, they were very skeptical of that, mm. so they were able to take advantage of some of the policy changes that were happening at the time almost at, and almost looked at them as a kind of natural experiment. So if they look at two neighborhoods or two jurisdictions that combined their police services and consolidated into kind of a larger, more bureaucratized system and compared that with jurisdictions that remained Independent, they thought mm-hmm. they can then go into those neighborhoods and ask people about how well the police are serving them. I mean this is where this kind of um ideological commitment to democratic ideals and small d, d- the mm-hmm. democratic principles the ideas of, of self governance of the fact that we're all free that we all have equal say and opportunity to participate in constructing the institutions that we live within, that that kind of democracy. Um, That leads them to then view the individual citizen as the big boss. So it so it doesn't matter what somebody in Congress says about the efficacy of this police department. What they care about is what do the people who live in those jurisdictions Think about the efficacy of that police department, do they feel safe?
2: in other words, what do the people in that neighborhood feel about their own neighborhood safety in the context of that neighborhood service, as opposed to you know some some bureaucrat or some representative downtown, for example
0: yes are they are, are those individuals getting what they want out of their local public services, or um, is it somebody else who's calling the shots? Um, so yeah, I, I think the, that kind of commitment to democ- democracy winds up forming this research question, and what they find is that in order to kind of genuinely um, address a particular community's unique safety problems, it actually is quite helpful to maybe have some redundancies, mm-hmm. you know to have you know, one of the things that redundancies do is that they enable competition with a system. Like this is true in markets if there's only one place to buy a computer from,
1: mm-hmm.
0: we're going to expect, you know, very little variety in computers that are provided, we're going to expect very high cost, low quality service, lower quality products. Whereas if you have multiple providers, they have to compete with each other for your business. Right. And it's the same in local public services. So if you have um, smaller jurisdictions that are competing with each other. And even better, if it's in a more open institutional framework where you can also have civil society organizations being allowed mm-hmm. to solve problems in the community and to propose their own solutions. And then, you know, there are some contexts where, uh, like, like one simple example is education. We often have a public option for education, but there are also often many private options, including, you know, different nonprofits like religious institutions might also have their own edu- educational offerings. So right. we can get competition not only within the political system, but across these different systems.
2: And c- continuing, because I think we're we're getting momentum in that direction regardless and continuing sort of on our way of, you know, pulling keywords to really get into Ost- Ostrom's thoughts um yeah well yeah i was gonna say we're well hopefully uh, on the same page otherwise i'm wrong and you feel free just to correct me but i feel like we're already kind of getting knee deep into the river of polycentric authority and polycentricity so why don't we kind of jump we'll can't say start from a jump off but really continue your train of thought into what we really mean by polycentricity when we put our eleanor ostrom hats on
0: yeah, that's exactly what I thought you were going to say. Um, and I should preface it for anybody who's getting kind of a first introduction to this concept or hearing this definition for the first time. Um, I, I don't necessarily expect a short presentation of this concept to make complete sense on the first year. Yeah, this is this is one of those kind of concepts that people tend to, to grapple with for quite a long time because I, I think it's just so counter to the ways that we're most used to thinking about hierarchy and power
1: Mm -hmm. for sure. Um,
0: But so polycentricity is this idea um, that you can have a power structure where there are multiple different authorities. They could be adjacent or overlapping and their interactions within an overarching system of rules can form a coherent system. So, um, a system of federal government, for example, it could be a polycentric system. It meets the multiple authorities um, criteria, certainly, Um, often within the same system of rules. But they may not have much freedom of entry and exit. You know, we are often quite uncomfortable with the idea of states entering or or exiting um, the overarching author- uh, system of rules. They may not have much genuine authority, you know, so you're not going to get much um, helpful interaction between the different jurisdictions if jurisdictions can't genuinely make different decisions and provide things in different ways. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've seen a decline in the United States, at least. I, I know less about the Canadian situation, although I, I have, have a sense that it's directionally the same, um, where there is more and more kind of federal dictate that limits the range in which states can choose to govern because there are more and more federal uh, mandates that they have to comply with. Um, and so that eliminates the possibility for interaction and that interaction between these jurisdictions the you know kind of the set of of three words the phrase that comes up a lot in their work is competition cooperation and conflict mm. so the competition is a big part of it the fact that you can choose to move to a different school system If you don't like the one you're currently in, you know, that's a a positive feature of a polycentric system.
2: And and sorry, just to cut in there, because I think it's a great, great, like, um, hands on example is that we're so used to centralized authority in schooling in many jurisdictions that people might think you mean move in the sense geographically moving to school district. But in a polycentric or like competitive sort of example, we might even mean they're so close in proximity geographically, but "Ah, I'm I'm choosing a different product for my kid or whatever, for example, just the ability to move in that sense is, I think, very key to sort of highlight to make sure we're not thinking like you know move across the state or something like that although that could be part of it too but
0: yeah yeah it could be the classic moving with your feet um but actually in a lot of policy areas there are ways to incorporate um that kind of movement or shifting to a different provider that doesn't require geographic relocation Mm -hmm. like companies do this all the time they can choose to incorporate you know if they're already a uh a company that operates in many different states, or maybe in many different countries around the world, they can often choose in which of those places they want to be headquartered. They don't have to move a single facility, but they can shift what the the primary governing body for that company is going to be.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So sorry, my, my bad on the digression. Just you're, i a poly, polycentric authority, and like how really what the, sketching that in our listeners' mind.
0: Yeah, um, and you know, one of the other features of that competition that's important before I go on to the corporation conflict too, is that, um, again, that cross systems thing. So the competition can be, um, you know, one town competing with another town, or it could be the town competing with the church competing with the women's association competing with, um, you know, companies that might be offering alternatives. So, I mean, there are some areas where um, you can kind of choose to go through a public service or maybe choose to go with a, a private provider. Like in healthcare, we've seen the, the rise of um, kind of concierge medicine that sidesteps the insurance process yeah. because of the complexity that's emerged. So it can be, you know, the polycentric system recognizes that this is it's not like you're exiting one system and leaving another. It's still the same system. And so the dynamics of that interaction are going to, you know, have impacts throughout. Um, and then those the different authorities within a polycentric system could also choose to cooperate with each other. So if we default to trying to um Center power in these local jurisdictions, that doesn't mean we're saying that anything that doesn't happen in your neighborhood, you don't get access to. You know, there are many different ways that one jurisdiction, one group of people can cooperate with other communities, with larger organizations, with different types of organizations in order to provide um, access to resources, in order to provide knowledge, um, whatever it might be. Um, with a wider range of other groups. So we can get competition or we can get cooperation. And they also highlight that conflict is actually an essential part of these systems too. So I think sometimes when people start reading Eleanor Ostrom's research, they get the sense that it's this kind of like kumbaya thing. Right. Where if we could just all come together and see eye to eye, we can sit around the fire and there won't be any more problems. Um but she's actually quite clear that that's not true, you know. And people can have deeply held values that are in conflict with each other. So, you know, kind of one way of describing kind of the the great social dilemma is how can we negotiate those values? How can we find a way to coexist despite the fact that we often want very different things, and we we might want things that are you know directly oppositional to what other people will want. So, I mean, these can be contentious conflicts, um, but that conflict, the battles that occur as part of that, the conversations that occur as part of that, the efforts that go into trying to convince people of one particular institutional solution rather than another, that's all part of this process of trying to figure out what solution is going to work best try to identify a way to meaningfully move forward. So yeah, that, that competition, cooperation, and conflict between multiple centers of power, all within the same system of rules, that's what polycentricity and understanding polycentricity is is all about, I think.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and And just to tie that off, as opposed to the other extreme, for example, where you have a highly centralized authority, like for instance, a state-planned bureaucratic sort of one-party state type of economy being run by a bunch of bureaucrats, like the like. think of the USSR, you know, classic caricature example kind of thing. These would be like on the relative opposite ends of a spectrum. You have like a highly centralized system of rules, of authority, of decision-making. And on the other side, you have a polycentric approach, for example.
0: Yep, the opposite. That's exactly right. The, the opposite of polycentricity is this monocentric pro- approach that in order to get any kind of coherence or any kind of efficiency in a system... We have to have somebody at the top who is keeping it all together. Mm-hmm. There's no way for a system to be kept together from the bottom up.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So, that kind of polycentric idea that it is possible to generate a coherent system from the bottom up without that centralized control—that's um, definitely, you know, one of the big challenges that the Ostroms bring to the table, along with a lot of other, you know, great 20th century theorists, of course, because the, the 20th century was a period of time where that, would, you know, sometimes when we talk about it, it can sound like this abstract intellectual battle. It's not, it, it's very real, you know, in yeah. millions upon millions of people died in the 20th century because of ideological pushes towards centralization. Mm-hmm. So the different um, wars that took place over the idea that if only my political party gets in power, if only I get my right person at the top.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, the great devastation that took place through the the biggest communist experiments that we saw, of course, in um, Russia and China, but a- around the world. I um, mean, you know, these were major... <laughs> major um, sources of devastation and of loss of life so counteracting that ideology and you know it's a whole research program this question of how did such strong commitment to that ideology of centralization come about Mm -hmm. in the first place um so i don't necessarily want to go into too much speculation about that right now because i think it might just distract but you know this research program is one corrective to that. You know, it's it's a really important line of inquiry that's trying to help us understand. So it, if we can't use centralization, let's not end the conversation there. Let's figure right. out what we can do instead.
2: Mm-hmm. And as you said too earlier, you touched on it, that like um, even aside from examples like, you know, full state communist societies and war and stuff, which are very important, you even kind of pointed out before that there was even this sort of, uh, intellectual trends of, you know, in some pockets of even like, you know, North America, when it came to sort of the way industry should work, there's a lot of people in the business class in the early and mid uh, 20th century that were very much interested in the idea, as you said, that if we just study the factory that we're overseeing enough, we can make sure that the guy or gal on the assembly line, if they just move their elbow slightly this much left, you know, an inch instead of that much more the other way, you know, over time we'll have like, like so on and so forth. So this idea of like that top down central authority of things, making things more efficient and uh, running everything great in theory, of course, was like very much spread across the intellectual regime, you know, not just like, you know, in, you know, for example, like, uh, you know, fascist Germany, but also uh, is sort of like a, in a broader sense, spread across a lot of thinking that was happening in the 20th century.
0: Yeah. And I, I think we're still dealing with it today. There's mm-hmm. been what to me is a, kind of a disconcerting rise in the popularity of the idea of epistocracy which mm. is that if you put the smartest people in charge right or the people with the the right information in charge you know we know that individuals are riddled with biases they make all kinds of mistakes but some people make fewer mistakes than others so if we can just get those folks in charge put them at the top of the hierarchy right we'll solve all these problems i think it's just another version of the same error Mm -hmm. agreed trying trying to you know that trying to engage in large-scale social control essentially
2: Mm -hmm. absolutely and um I'm just keeping an eye on the clock here. I had more to ask you about on poly- polycentricity and polycentric authority, but uh, as as you you well know, we could we could probably go for hours and hours on this. But as you said, sort of just a starter buffet for all of our listeners. We encourage everyone to look more into this stuff. But I, I do want to make sure we also get in here. Um, You know, all of this discussion, whether you have a huge central authority or you have a polycentric sort of network of neighborhoods doing things and, you know, uh, creating their own sort of ways of life, however you want. But at some point, you're going to run into the concept of institutions and rules. Now, because of let's just say, a lot of people's centralized mindset, which I think is is embedded in a lot of us, just the way we live today. Um, people, when they think of an institution and rules, they think of something very official. Perhaps a bureau of people get together. That bureau happens to be the institution and they list out a little charter. Here's the laws for the city. There you go. We have our institution and rules. But again, when we put on our Ostrom hat, what should we more broadly think of what we mean when we talk about an institution and rules?
0: Yeah, there are a lot of different definitions of institutions within, um, you know, the field that's known as institutional economics. Um, One of my preferred middle ground definitions is from Jeffrey Hodgson, who says that institutions are social rule systems. So um, what this means is that if we want to understand the content of an institutional environment, what we're looking for is what do people perceive to be the rules that they have to follow if they want to either gain particular rewards or avoid particular punishments? So the rule is is the specific thing that you're being told that you either must do or can't do or should do. And it's also the penalty that's associated with failing to follow through. So, and... You know, Eleanor Ostrom, and uh, she takes an even more maybe comprehensive definition and also points to the fact that once you have that network of kind of commandments and penalties that are attached to it, people will devise strategies for how they're going to get along within that system. And so the expected strategies that emerge, she says, are also part of that institutional system. But yeah, it doesn't have anything to do with the fanciness of a, of a building. It doesn't even, you know, institutions are not a particular organizational type, the way Eleanor Ostrom talks about them and the mm-hmm. way institutional economists talk about them. It's this nexus of rules that come from our communities, that come from our culture, that come from our families, our religious organizations, from our, you know, from governments, from systems of law, of course, as well. Um, but this variety of written and unwritten, formal and informal um, rules, like like sets of expectations we have about just how things are going to go if we act in a particular way, that forms this system within which we make all of our decisions, take all of our actions, and kind of we're always figuring out how to negotiate ourselves and how to move forward our plans, keeping it, you know, in mind the fact that we live in sometimes these really complicated rule structures. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the rules can be different, you know, when you're at home with your family, as opposed to when you're at work, as opposed to if you're, um, you know, in a courtroom. So it's a complex thing that human beings Mm -hmm. have learned to interact and deal with. It's just the complexity of the rules we all face every day. Mm And, and just the effort to articulate those can often go a long way towards explaining why it is that people prefer particular strategies or feel the need to act in particular ways when they face a problem.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and just the idea in and of itself that you one, one can uh, think broader on the idea of institutions and rules and what they are in and of themselves and the fact that different sets and different pairs and different groupings, however you want to say it, can exist across the board with some redundancy and variety and sort of that kind of pluralism. like That in and of itself um is sort of like an an insight that i think it's important to pull from ostrom and all the themes in her work as well regardless if we start you know getting into case studies and proving it here for example with historical examples like just just the idea of switching the mindset seems to be helpful in one part of her in in enduring legacy
0: yeah i think the that kind of description i gave can make the concept seem more complicated but I think that understanding of what an institutional environment is also makes it more accessible in a practical way. Because mm-hmm. it enables us as individuals to recognize all the ways that our interactions can be shaping what the rules will be going forward.
2: Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah, We had an episode with uh, Jennifer Sveeley, and she talked about um, sort of like... Anarchism effectively and how there were small communities in Afghanistan that were doing a lot better in multiple small groups governing themselves rather than the central authority trying to pull them in. So I think that's a really good one kind of example I could think in my head and I encourage people also listen to episode. if They haven't caught that, but um, but it's one of those things that exactly, as you said, sort of shows that something that sounds a little more complicated on face value. Oh my God, multiple communities doing several things with several different councils and smaller groupings of people making decisions. It, uh, it sounds more complicated as far as the system. If you take a bird's eye view, but when you sort of get into what the actual people are experiencing, it's a, a lot of a simpler form of authority and a decision making structure to deal with like you know who the elder in the community is to go talk to for dispute resolution or who's going to referee a claim and i think in the episode jennifer also talked about not having to trudge your your behind sort of three hours away to the city and deal with a bunch of bureaucrats or something for a land dispute so stuff that's it's one of those like inverse things right stuff that sounds simple oh we'll just have a bureau and a bunch of people working there versus oh no we have a network of polycentric it's one of those things that each sounds either simpler or more complicated, but sometimes you find the reverse when you actually get into the practicality, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that that also raises, your comment raises another um, important point that Eleanor Ostrom makes in quite a few of her pieces, which is that if the world around us is so complex that we're having difficulty understanding it, that's not an argument for trying to simplify the world. That's an argument for complicating our understanding.
2: Right, yeah. If you find yourself frustrated, you can't summarize it all in one tweet. It's maybe it's not that it's the thing that's frustrating in and of itself. It's just understand it a little better to start, it, at the very least.
0: Yeah, and then yeah, you know, I know that you know you've done quite a few episodes on on liberalism. I know that's something that it, you know is interesting and a part of the conversation you're having here. I think you know this is something that winds up being supportive of a liberal society because if we have to come to agreement on everything such that we can collapse our institutions into one simple top-down hierarchy we collapse enormous scope for diversity for people to be pursuing a wide range of individual plans and genuinely taking on autonomy for their own lives and for what they want their own path to be mm-hmm. so i you know uh, a research approach that embraces complexity Political institutions that admit polycentricity. I think these are essential ingredients of what can make a liberal world, you know, possible moving into the future as we have have this increasingly interconnected and kind of increasingly easy to centralize society
1: mm-hmm.
0: without these ideas and keeping these tools a- available and top of mind and so and we understand we can go from the bottom up. I, I think this could really be quite important to preserving liberalism going forward.
2: Mm-hmm. Agreed. And our time is winding down here. It has flown on this topic. Um, I didn't expect, so I can probably throw one more sort of prompt and last section of conversation uh, for us here to to hear your answer on and your thoughts. And then I'll move us to the formal wrap up. I didn't think this would be my last question here, but it seems quite uh, appropriate either way. I know Sabine's already writing notes for part two and probably has an email drafted to invite you back. So that's great. Um, But, but, you know, and it actually kind of really works. So, you know, kind of exploring this sort of idea I put together of using a keyword as a jump off point. So I I know this is sort of an unfair sort of big thing to tackle as the last question, but we'll, we'll, you know, consider it sort of that teaser. Hopefully again, listeners always look into this stuff. There's a lot more than just a couple of answers here that can provide, especially on this stuff. Um, But like I said, it seems appropriate to end on this. So when we use the keyword commons and take a prompt from the title of arguably what you say is her greatest work governing the commons, um, what, what do we mean by commons and what do we mean that people can actually govern it and so on and so forth? What kind of broadest insight possible do you think we can pull at the high level if we can sort of putting everything together that we sort of talked about and tying it into a bow as much as we possibly can? What what do we mean by the commons and what do we mean by governing it? What What's possible? What's not possible? What are the, what are the kind of main insights we should take away from all the kinds of things we've been discussing?
0: I'll do my best. Um, a commons is a property arrangement that a lot of big tent ideologies do not like because it's a, a resource system that no particular individual owns. Instead, it is held for the entire community to be able to access. So um, this challenges ideas on both sides. So it, it in- of the ideological spectrum because it challenges the idea that in order to govern a system that is for the public, that we have to have a formal government managing that system. And Eleanor Ostrom's research also challenges, and, and she's oh she was always careful to point out that she did not want to be put in any... Of the big tent ideological buckets, because she said it also challenges the idea that simple privatization can solve everything. Because especially if you're stepping into a existing system, which which all all important resource systems do have their own history, right? And the, you know the reason why they um, can generate conflict sometimes is that a lot of people are already using them and drawing on them. So, simple privatization can wind up generating more problems than it solves because you are disrupting existing ownership structures and existing conflict solving structures. But so, what Eleanor Ostrom points out in her work on the commons is that just because we don't have a formal assigned private owner, just because we don't have a public government ownership system, doesn't mean that there's not a coherent governance structure that has been created by the people who draw on that resource. Mm-hmm. And so even you know individual groups have come up with quite um sophisticated system of rules on their own where they have no third party involved just the people who use the system you know just the farmers who are drawing from that um water basin just the population that is is fishing off of a particular island you know they work together to set limits on resource use to come up with fair systems that they perceive as fair um to punish anybody who tries to cheat the system and so it again comes back to this big picture question or this big picture idea that if a group of people can work together, they have the ability to change their own rules, the rules that govern them. And so it becomes possible for those individuals in that situation, if we kind of take a step back and look at what they're doing, even though it doesn't look like the formal government structures that we're used to, um, they are systems of rules that have emerged to solve a potential situation of conflict. So I think, you know, this is why the commons and her work governing the commons, which goes through all of these different historical examples of successful resolution of commons problems, it just illustrates this big picture question that just animates all of her research about what is the potential for democratic arrangement. So so do people have the ability to create and enforce their own rules? Or are we again are we all just sitting around waiting for somebody to save us? And she doesn't want anybody sitting around waiting for somebody to save them.
2: Mm-hmm. And again, I'll just emphasize, because I like the way you emphasized before, too, that we mean democratic, as usual in this conversation, and like a broader sort of lowercase d, like truly the concept of what we mean by democratic, and not literally, again, we all go into a centralized voting polling booth, for example. So I think that's great. so Jamie I'm I'm going to our time is out here I'm going to have to move us to our formal wrap up although we could probably continue on this for a very long time. I think we we have talked about a lot and touched on many things. I think in many different areas we painted a great picture. Uh you know the goal here was to kind of create that 101 jump off point on Eleanor Ostrom and her not only her life but also the kinds of things she contributed. So on that note then Uh, If we can try and bring this conversation full circle and put a finer point on our exploration of that sort of 101, let me officially ask you to tie it up if we can. What do you ultimately hope are the main takeaways for someone listening to you here on who Eleanor Ostrom was and the kinds of things she contributed? In other words, if you wanted someone to just take one or two or just a few takeaways from this conversation, if anything, out of everything, what would you want them to leave with?
0: I would want them to leave with the impression that Eleanor Ostrom was a woman of great determination, great complexity, and great insight, who fought against discriminatory barriers to be able to successfully teach us something important about how we can overcome our own barriers. And so this, the the, the democratic potential, the fact that you don't have to remain trapped in an unpleasant situation, but instead you have the power to be your own governor, to participate in this process of self-governance. That is the big picture that I hope people will take away about Eleanor Ostrom, and I hope that they read some of her work. She has such an incredibly um, rich and complex body of scholarly output um, and if it's okay, I'll also add that just this year the Mercatus Center um, academic and student programs is offering an Eleanor Ostrom fellowship, and so if you are um in graduate study in any field, in any university around the world, or if you know somebody who is, um, I would just invite you to to apply for that fellowship and come and uh participate in this conversation that we're trying to have. I, I think the Hayek program at the Mercatus Center, I'm I'm so proud to be a part of it because we just have been able to Um, Do so much to invite people who are outside of the formal economics discipline, who are working in a wide range of methods from a wide range of perspectives, and just try to tackle this big question we all care about of how can we foster an institutional environment where we can have societies based on creativity and entrepreneurship and trust rather than societies that are mired in inertia where we're driven by our by our fear of predation, by our suspicions of each other. So I, I think that kind of institutional transformation um, is something that we can work towards if we all have this conversation together. And I don't know, I hope that doesn't sound too pollyanna but I really have learned a lot myself from Eleanor Ostrom about um, these issues and you know it's raised as many questions as answers but that's the that's the nature of the beast when you're trying to deal with these big social problems
2: No, <laughs> oh, i think that was great and i think that's an excellent place to leave it so let me just say uh, jamie lemke thank you very much for joining me on the curious task today
0: thank you so much alex i'm so happy to be here <music>
2: The Curious Task is a podcast from the Institute for Liberal Studies. This episode was produced by Alex Aragona, Sabine El-Chediak, and Eric Seguin. Our executive producer is Matt Bufton. The music you hear on the podcast is by Lindy Voppenfjord. You should check out his other stuff online. The Curious Task exists today because of donations of time and money from those creating it and listeners like yourself. Check us out on Patreon and find out how you can support us and get access to exclusive offers. I'm Alex Aragona, and thank you very much for joining us on The Curious Task.
1: I hope you enjoyed this re-airing of Jamie Lemke talking all about Eleanor Ostrom. Hearing about her life and legacy makes me more hopeful for the future, a future that could include more creativity, opportunity and trust, and less government control. Hope to see you next week.